Um, over Christmas time, somebody bought me a book, which I brought with me, um, a book on time management. Um, I haven't read it yet because I haven't found time, um, but, it, but it does promise to be good because Chris Evans says, every sentence is riven with gold, and if that doesn't get you, Darren Brown, a celebration of all that is most human. It's good, isn't it? Um, I I have read two sentences, in fact, and they said this. Um, They said, nobody these days needs telling that there isn't enough time. We're obsessed with our overfilled inboxes and lengthening to-do lists, haunted by the guilty feeling that we ought to be getting more done or different things done, or both. I had a conversation with my dad over the Christmas break, and he was worrying about the fact that he might be becoming lazy makes my mum very cross when he says that, but he's very worried about being lazy, about wasting his time. So I asked him a bit about that. Where does that come from? And he said, oh boy, he calls me good boy. Boy, when, you were, when, when I was a teenager, I just slept. I slept and I wasted all that time and I've got to get it back. I'm wasting all this time. I don't want to be lazy. Well, 2023 is well underway, isn't it now? Um, I don't know how January has gone for you so far. Some of us will have returned to work Um, and met that kind of avalanche of emails that you get, and the brief pause of the Christmas break has been forgotten. Uh, Some would have um, ambitiously resolved to do something new. Uh, My sister is going to do V-January. She's going to be a vegan for January. I don't know what you think about that, but I, I, I don't know. I think to eliminate some of the foods that you most enjoy in the darkest and most depressing month of the year... That that seems like a bold move, doesn't it? A really bold move. And yet New Year is an opportunity for bold moves. The thing is, life is busy, isn't it? And life is pressured. And and easily, we just get swept along with it, swept along and caught up. And it all all can just become too much. It can be like when you've got too many programs open on your computer and everything freezes up. And you just need, at some point, to hit the reset Well, this morning we have a passage which I think interrupts us at the beginning of this year and encourages us to do something of that, to press the reset button. Uh, There is one instruction in our passage, and it comes in verse 10. You'll see it there in the second word. Remember. Paul writes writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he tells them they have to remember. And I think at the start of the year, that is a helpful activity for us to do. To remember. Uh, With everything that presses on our time, everything that shouts for space in our thinking, all that burdens us with its importance. If we're going to walk faithfully into the year ahead, whatever it might hold, we are called to remember. Uh, What are we to remember? Well, I think there are three things in this passage. We are to remember what we were. We are to remember what Christ has done. And we are to remember what we are. Now, we are, of course, picking up in the middle of this letter. Paul um, has already written a chapter and a half. In the first chapter, he begins with praise and prayer. In the first chapter, Paul just wants to celebrate the indescribably wonderful blessings that come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he prays for these believers. And as he prays for them, in chapter 1, verse 19, he prays that they would know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. And then I think one of the ways that he helps them to know the power is that in chapter 2, he calls them to 
to reflect, to remember what they once were and what they now are. He's done that already in the first half of the chapter, in the first 10 verses. He says to them, once you were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. And he does it again in in the passage that we're looking at. Once you were, but now you are. And, And he does it because he wants them to grasp the more and more of that excessive greatness of God's power towards them. That's his prayer. And when we get into chapter 3, we find him praying again. And Nikki included some of that prayer from chapter 3 as she, as she led our prayers a moment ago. Uh, he prays that they would know the immensity of Christ's love. Now, he's telling them these things so that they would know those things. He says, uh, I want you to know the greatness of God's power and the immensity of Christ's love. So you have to remember Remember. Well, what are we to remember? First of all, remember what we were, verse 11 and 12. Now, this church in Ephesus is made up of believers who are mostly not from a Jewish background. So Paul says to them, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. That identification as Gentiles... That's not their self-identification. These people didn't grow up thinking, we're not Jews. They didn't grow up saying, we are the uncircumcised. No, in fact, Paul says that is how those who call themselves the circumcision identify them. Uncircumcised. It was a derogatory label. Paul gives his own view on that when he says the circumcision group is done in the body by human hands. It's an external thing. It's not a work of God. It's rather the work of man. But what he's doing in verse 11 is pointing us toward a deep hatred between the Jews and the non-Jews. If a Jewish boy were to marry a Gentile girl, then, then the boy's family would hold a funeral service. He was as good as dead to them. Uh, the Jews would not eat with the non-Jews. They wouldn't go into their houses. They, they would insulate themselves from getting polluted. And the non-Jews return the sentiment with interest. Paul gets, though, to the point to remember in verse 12. This is what you are to bring to mind, he says. You see, at that time, you were separate from Christ. In Ephesians 1, Paul has said, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is in Christ. And now he says there was a time when you were separate from that outside of that blessing. There is no blessing of God outside of Christ. Then he says, and you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Now the whole of history is a great redemption story, a great story of a world that was plunged into darkness at the fall and then out of the ashes God raises a people to be his treasured possession. God builds a kingdom people to belong to him. But these Gentiles had no part in that. And and then Paul says, you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. The great promises of God, his great redemptive purposes. Promises to Abraham and then then to the nation of Israel and then to David. And uh, these great covenants that were intended to open the blessings of God to the nations. But, But they were strange things to these Gentiles. They had no purchase in them. And so Paul says, they were without hope. And without God in the world. If they're going to get the greatness of God's power, Paul wants them to remember the condition they were in when the power met them. 
I want to make just a couple of observations on this. First one is that all of this is hindsight. Now, that the average Gentile Ephesian was blissfully unaware of any of this. If you went to Ephesus before the message of Christ came and did a, did a kind of street survey, the people wouldn't say, oh yeah, I'm, a, I'm uncircumcised, I'm separate from Christ, I'm excluded from citizenship in Israel, and I'm a foreigner to the covenants of promise, and I'm, I'm hopeless and I'm godless in the world. They wouldn't say that. They only know this now that the power of God has met them. Now they look back and they have a, a new way of understanding what they were. It's hindsight. Second observation, it's corporate. Paul isn't saying this is your individual story. He's saying this is your group story. He's not saying I want you to think about your personal background. He's saying to this whole church, this is your shared history. It was true of you as a group. Of course, the things would work out in personal ways, but he's identifying the common theme. They are to remember what they were, and so must we. Now, we too must apply this corporate hindsight. Now, here we are today, Kingfisher Church, a group of believers, and we, we all have our own stories, don't we? And yet, we also have a shared story, what we were as a group. A bit like if you think about the people on the ship Titanic. On that ship, they were all doing their different things. They had their personal stories. But we can say everyone on that ship was doomed to destruction. We can only say that because of hindsight, of course. And see, verse 12 applies to us. This is what we once were. Now, God is revealing in the Bible the truth of our former condition. We might not think too much about this, but we're encouraged now to press into it. We were separate from Christ. We were excluded from citizenship in Israel. We were were strangers to the covenants of the promise. We were without hope and without God in the world. And at the time, it may not have felt like that. Now, those traveling on the Titanic didn't feel that they were doomed. Sometimes the process of becoming a Christian can feel not that dramatic. Maybe it seems like not too much changes. We may not have felt that we were drowning in a mire of hopelessness. Yet now we can apply hindsight. God reveals to us that whatever we were living for, whatever we thought life was about, whatever we were, wherever we were putting our hope, it was empty. It was dust. Now we can look back and see that when we didn't have Christ, we didn't have anything. Here at Kingfisher Church, we can look back at our shared history and see what we once were. See that like these Ephesians, the power of God met us when we were thoroughly doomed. Now God's power reached out to us when we had nothing going for us. We were, we, we were shut out, we were shut off, shut up. And there wasn't even a tiniest spark of real hope and ignorant of it, ignorant to our peril. Now, God doesn't show his power by giving a boost to those who are on their way. God shows his power by finding a group who are are most lost and most unsavable and most blind and most deaf, most far. That's what we once were. Now, we can know the greatness of God's power, the love of Christ, when we remember what we once were. But we mustn't let our thinking stay in the past. We need to move on. The second thing we are to remember 
is what Christ has done. Uh, look with me at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, the past that we had described in verse 11 and 12 has been radically transformed. Once we were far and now we're near, and it's all about Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, by the blood of Christ. And and this focus on what Christ has done launches Paul into verses 14 to 18. Now, he he could, I think, probably go straight to verse 19. um, But I think he wants to dwell on the activity of Christ. I wonder how often we dwell on the activity of Christ. I, I wonder sometimes if so many of the problems that we have in our lives, or maybe even in our church, stem from the fact that we just let our gaze slip from remembering what Christ has done. Verses 14 to 18 are given to help us remember what Christ has done. It's launched into by verse 13. It says that that in Christ and by the blood of Christ, we're brought near. What's going on there? Verse 14 answers and answers emphatically, for he, for Christ himself, is our peace. You know, when a doctor performs CPR to save a person's life, the doctor isn't bringing help, the doctor is the help. When a, when a, a lifeboat comes to a sinking ship and, and takes people on board, the lifeboat doesn't bring the rescue, it is the rescue. And Jesus Christ isn't one who simply brings peace. No, he himself is our peace. The peace he brings is it's constituted in who he is. And this piece is the whole answer to the problem described in verse 11 and 12. You see, when we look back and remember what we were, we recall um, two dimensions to our division. There's there's division on the horizontal level and there's division on the vertical level. There was division between people, especially as Paul highlights between the Jews and the Gentiles. This hatred, a deep hatred and suspicion, almost total separation between these groups, division on the horizontal. Uh, There was also division between people and God. Uh, These Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship. Words of division, alien to the promises, hopeless and godless. Division on the vertical. Uh, But now Christ comes and overcomes those divisions because he himself is our peace. If you look into verse 15, you see the purpose of Christ's activity. And the purpose has two parts. First, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. That answers the horizontal division. He makes peace. But secondly, his purpose was in one body to reconcile both to God. And that answers the vertical division between people and God. Christ, who comes as our peace, brings together people who hate each other and brings those people to God. How does he do it? Well, Paul describes a barrier, a dividing wall of hostility, and he calls it the law with its commands and regulations. 
There was no peace because of the barrier. And this barrier represents both aspects of division, division between people and division between people and God. You see, the Jews would, would use the law, the commands of God given in the Old Testament, to separate themselves from the Gentiles. Now, instead of the Jews being a light to the Gentiles, they put up barriers, literally at times. In the temple building, they built a wall, and the wall had signs on it that said, no Gentiles can pass this barrier, otherwise they will die. And yet the same law demanded that God's justice fall onto sinners, onto all sinners. That same law had become a barrier between everyone and God because it showed how everyone turns away from God. And not only that people turn from God, but that God in his holiness cannot look on sin, and so also he turns away from them. Earlier in the chapter, it says that all of us were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Separate from Christ, there wasn't any peace. Uh, the basic command in the Bible is to love God and love others. Now, all of history demonstrates the, the breaking of those things as people fight and argue and fall out and, uh, and do it all under a shadow of hopeless godlessness. There's a great barrier dividing people from one another and people from God. So what did Christ do to the barrier? He smashed it down. That's what verse 14 says. He destroyed the barrier. How did he destroy it? Well, he did it by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And it's here that the, the blood of Christ from verse 13 comes to play its part. Now, Christ set aside the law by picking up the tab. Now, the law demanded death as the price for sin. And so Christ came into the world. The Son of God took flesh. He took flesh so that in that flesh he could pay the price. And once the price was paid, the penalty of the law no longer had a claim. Once the price was paid, the barrier came crashing down. Crashing down for all who belong to Jesus. As verse 8 says, all who are saved by grace and through faith. So when anybody puts their trust in Christ, they get joined to Christ. There's, there's only one rescue boat out of this world, and the name is Jesus Christ. And everyone who gets on board that boat are saved. But when you get on board the boat, you find that there are others in the same boat with you. And that's the other part of Christ's work. Not, not only that Christ would go to the cross and shed his blood and answer for our sin, but also... He would create in himself one new humanity out of the two. He makes the two groups into one. These two alien groups come and find common ground in Christ. Now, to use the law as a barrier between them is meaningless when they're saved by grace and through faith. And it's not from themselves. It's not because of anything they can do. It's not because of any law they have or any rules they follow. It's not because of their race or their background or their pedigree or their culture or their performance or their history. It's only a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, these alien groups find their common ground in Christ. Christ creates them into a new humanity, into one body of people. A spiritually constituted unity, and that body he reconciles to God. And to be reconciled to God means he puts God on friendly terms with them. And he puts them on friendly terms with God. 
It, it means that instead of there being a wall between us and God, there's now a Christ. Christ himself is our peace. Peace with God. Instead of a wall between us and God, there's a Christ and peace with one another. Instead of a wall between us and others, there is also now a Christ. Verse 17 says, so Christ came and preached. Christ came and announced the good news. The good news of what? Of peace. Peace to those who were far and peace to those who were near. The same message of peace goes to everyone who will receive. And so verse 18, through him we both, both these groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, have access to the Father by one spirit. Christ brings us together and together he brings us to God. This is a corporate thing. Paul isn't describing them as individuals, he's describing them as a group. Now, verse 13 doesn't say, Christ is my peace. He's not saying, Christ gives me a personal sense of wholeness. He might do that. But he's not saying here, Christ is my peace. He's saying, Christ is our peace. So here we are as Kingfisher Church, a group of believers. And we are to remember what Christ has done for us. Which remember that we who once were so far have been brought so near. We've been brought so near that we have access through Christ by the one spirit to the father. We come to God as a father. Now Christ's blood is cross. It answers for our sins so that dividing wall of hostility is smashed down. Reconciling us to God and reconciling us to one another. Now Christ brings us, he brings Kingfisher Church together, and together he brings us to God. What if we didn't remember that? Well, we're supposed to remember it, but what if, we, what if this slipped from our thinking? What would it look like if, if we didn't have this foremost in our minds? I guess we, we might start to think that it's something other than Christ that holds us together. We might start to think that our, our unity is based on us having to like one another or, or even having to like the things that other people like or, or having, I don't know, the same political persuasion or enjoying the same music. Now, what if we didn't remember this? If we didn't remember this, we might be content with division, even under the guise of good intentions. Uh, We might want to drive forward our own agendas, our own idea of what things should be like. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, he said, Innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from a wish dream. He says, He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. And forgetting that the only foundation of our fellowship, the only foundation, the only, the, only, the only thing that stands between us and others is Christ, and only Christ. He's the one who forms our fellowship. Only the Lord Jesus. You know, when Paul in this letter comes to, to drive home the application, to tell them what they're to do with all of this, in the second half of the letter, he, he begins it in chapter 4 saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, all this stuff that he's been saying, they once were dead, they're now alive, they once were far, they're now near, they've been brought together, and together they've been brought to God. 
He gets to chapter 4 and he says, you've got to work out in all of your life these things that God has worked in. And, and broadly speaking, in the second half of the letter, he covers three areas of application. And the first one he touches on is church unity. Chapter 4, verse 3, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What peace? Well, the peace that our passage speaks about. Christ himself is our peace. In Christ, we have peace with others and peace with God. We're to make every effort to keep that unity. And what does it mean in practice? Well, Paul tells us, he says, be completely humble. Now think about others more than yourself. Be gentle. Don't be hard and bitter and biting. And be patient, bearing with one another in love. Are we to remember what Christ has done? And work it out in our relationships together. You see, we can know the greatness of God's power and the love of Christ when we remember what we once were. When we remember what Christ has done. And then thirdly, when we remember what we are. You see, action is consequent to identity, isn't it? Um, That means... Why does a fish swim and not fly? Because it's a fish. Now, if a, if a fish forgets its fishness and tries to fly, it's not going to go very well. If a church forgets what it is, it will fail to do what it should. Now, we are here as Kingfisher Church, as a group of believers, and we're to remember what we are so that we know what to do. Now, if we forget what we are, then we won't know what to do. We've got to remember And so verse 19 picks up that dynamic of verses 11 to 13. Once you were, but now you are. Verse 13, you were far, but now you're near. And so, verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. No longer what you were in verse 11 and 12, but now what you are. What does it say? Fellow citizens with God's people. Is that how we think about ourselves? Verse 12 says, once we were excluded from citizenship in Israel. And and I guess in in one sense, we will always be outside of that political entity. But what Israel foreshadowed was the polity of the saints. And now we have entered into full and shared citizenship with all who believe in Jesus. We have been enrolled as citizens of God's people. We belong to the kingdom of God. Now this church, as we gather, is a political body because we have a king his name is Jesus and we have we have his word to govern us and we're under his protection and when we come together we're we're joining in a great counter-revolution the kingdom of God was rebelled against in the beginning and the whole world was put under the rule of a pretender a tyrant the devil himself but we're not citizens of his kingdom We belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that has come and is coming and is growing. And we gather here as a, as a, a, like, like when, um, when there's a a political gathering of people to rebel against the state, we have come to gather and to rebel against the pretender and proclaim our identity as true citizens of the kingdom of God, an outpost of that kingdom. Is that how we think? Well, Paul doesn't really give us time to pause because he moves on very quickly to another description. He says, also members of his household. Now, it's family language. 
Now, when we look around here, we see one another. We're seeing those who belong with us in the family of God. And then Paul shifts his ideas again. He's, he's using lots of ideas here. He's spoken of a, a new humanity and one body and a nation of citizens and a family. And next he says, you are a building. Now, we often say the church isn't the building, it's the people. We say that a lot at Kingfisher because we haven't got a building. Um, but we, we maybe should say the church is the building. And the building is the people. I think he tells us four things about this building. First thing, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Those who God first made known the gospel and then were sent to make that gospel known, that's the foundation of the building. As that message of Christ went out and people responded in faith, they were incorporated into the building. Now, the only way to be part of the building is to be built on that foundation to respond to the gospel. Second thing, uh, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is the essential part of the construction. Uh, the only, uh, every part of the building finds its place when it is in relation to him. Thirdly, uh, the building is growing. It says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises. And in him, you too are being built together. How does a building grow? You, you add more stones, don't you? Add, add more bricks. A, a construction of that time would often mean existing stones had to be chipped and shaped in order to fit the new stones in. And Paul wants to imagine themselves like that kind of construction, being, being chipped away so they can tightly fit with the new believers who are being added in as this construction rises to take its shape. It's a growing building. And then fourthly, this building has a purpose. It's not just any old building. This building is, see the end of verse 21, a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It's at this point the picture fades away and the reality comes to the surface. See, see when we, we now speak of the church as temple, we're not speaking of a metaphor. It's not picture language anymore. This is the real thing. That the temple is the place of God's presence. Now, way, way back when, when Moses constructed the tabernacle as a place of meeting, that was a model. And then, and then when Solomon took that tabernacle and fixed it in place with the temple building, it was again a model. That was the picture. But when Christ came, the reality came with him and the picture became redundant. The reality is what Christ has done, what Christ is doing to build his people into the place of God's presence. And once they were without God in the world, once they were lost, they were hopeless. But then Christ took hold of them and he brought them together and he brought them to God. He brought them up to God. But then simultaneously, there's a movement of God to them. And by the Spirit brought to God, verse 18, but also verse 22, by the Spirit he dwells among his people. Now, every Sunday we put up this slide. It says, we are the place of God's presence. Do, do you know why we put that up every Sunday? Because we are the place of God's presence. It's so easy to miss it, isn't it? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, wrote the Screwtape Letters with 
a kind of fictional advice from, from between two devils about how to get people away from the faith. And this, this advice says it's no problem if somebody goes to church, but when they go, just let them see the surface of things. Well, when they go, let them see the annoying habits of the people around them and the strange expressions on their faces and let them, let them think about what people are wearing or about how long the preacher is preaching and don't, don't let them ever see the real thing. But what is the real thing? We are a temple. The true, living, eternal temple that extends from all eternity and it reaches back to be manifest in this moment right now. We are the place of God's presence. That's a dizzying truth. It's perplexing. When you start to think on it, I think it's muddling and mesmerizing at the same time. But I think we need to think on it and think on it often. There's so much more we could say about it. We must give time just to touch upon the consequences. Because the reality comes with huge consequence. Now, if we forget this, we will fail to do what we should do. Got to remember, because action flows from identity. I said when Paul in this letter drives home the applications from chapter 4 onwards, he broadly touches on three themes. The first one I mentioned already is unity. It says in chapter 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That flows from identity. We're brought together and together to God. That's who we are. So that's how we are to live. The second area of application that Paul touches on flows from our identity at the end of verse 21, that we are a holy temple in the Lord. If I were to describe my home as a place fit for a queen, you would know that I was joking. Because um, we fit for a queen, it has to be pristine, doesn't it? Perfectly placed, needs to be cleansed to the utmost to be fit for a queen. Oh, we are the place of God's presence. We're not to be fit for a queen. We're to be fit for the living God. And so Ephesians 4.22 says, You were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness and he gives practical examples he says you shouldn't lie you shouldn't steal you should use your words to build up and not to bring down he says among you there there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people we are the holy temple he says don't get drunk on wine but be filled with the spirit now, I wonder sometimes if we, we kind of trip ourselves over by, by saying what it says earlier in chapter 2. We say, it's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not by works. We say that our deeds, whether they're good or they're bad, cannot change our relationship with God. We are not saved by what we do, but only saved by what Christ has done. And that is gloriously true. But then we forget that once we are saved, once we have been brought to God by the blood of Christ, we are made into a holy temple a dwelling place for God, and we forget it, and so we carelessly continue in our sin. We despise the cost of our salvation. We dishonor the name by which we're called. We forget that we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. When we forget that we are the holy temple of the Lord, we will tolerate sin, make light of it, let its poison spread. We can't handle that alone. Now we are together to be holy. So we need each other. We're told to confess our sins. 
told to warn each other the deceitfulness of sin. We have to remind each other where we came from. Remind each other of what Christ has done. Remind each other of what we are, that we are a holy temple, so we must be holy. The third area of application that Paul touches on flows from our identity as a growing building. Our passage says, in him you are being built together. Christ is building. And we are the church that he builds. The way that he builds, in verse 17, he preaches peace to all. He announces good news of peace. And when we get to chapter 411, we see that Christ gives to the church evangelists. The same root word as in 2.17, those who announce the good news. And these evangelists in 4.11, when you get to 4.12, we see their job is to equip the people for works of service. So the body of Christ may be built. Christ makes his appeal through his people. Uh, Through us, the good news of peace is to be announced. The, The original message about Jesus first delivered to the apostles and prophets. The very foundation of the building. Is to go out through us so that all who respond by faith are incorporated into the building and are shaped to fit all the others so the building can grow and grow and grow and grow. I wonder what it would look like if we forgot that. If we forget that we are a growing building. We could again fall into screw tape's trap. We just see the surface of things. We, we look around and we think, well, it just looks a bit muddy, does, a bit muddled, doesn't it? And it doesn't look very shiny or very impressive. And things don't really seem to work very well. Maybe they don't work very well. And we think, well, there isn't anything going on. There isn't any growth. And, and if we start to think that, well, we could do a number of things, couldn't we? we? We could think we've got to take things into our own hands. Maybe we need to change the message to make it more, more palatable. Or, or maybe we need to just shout a bit louder or... And what would it look like if we forgot that we are a growing building? We could just give up, couldn't we? Just just give up. Stop praying. Stop looking for the opportunities to speak about Jesus. Stop thinking about who the Lord might be putting in our way for us to invite to come and hear more. And we are a growing building. Here at Kingfisher, to the extent that we are Jesus' church, we are a growing building and he will be growing us. Now, Kingfisher as a local church may or may not be here next week or next year. It doesn't really matter, but there will always be growth. We are a growing building because Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The passage we had this morning really just tells us one thing. We are to remember. We are to remember. In the first chapter, Paul bled his heart for these people as he prays for them, prays for them to know more and more of the wonders of what God has done. He wants them to know more of the incomparable greatness of God's great power towards them. And he wants them to know all of it so that the praise, all of the praise will be turned to our awesome and glorious great God and Father of Jesus Christ. So he says, you've got to remember. Remember what you were. Remember what Christ has done. And remember what you are. I'm not very into making New Year's resolutions. And yet I do want to encourage all of us to consider making 2023 a year when we remember. A year when we, when we remember, when we remind one another. 
a year when we pray that remembering into action. I wonder if you'll join me in that. Are we going to pray now and then we will sing? Oh, we want to ask you, God, the great God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, please would you give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. We pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened so that we may know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Dear God in heaven, we pray that you'd help all of us to remember, to remember what we once were. Father, I pray for any here this morning who are still in that condition, without hope and without God in the world. Would you open their eyes to see that there is peace, certain, lasting, eternal peace to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you'd help us to remember what Christ has done. May there never be a day when we, when we neglect to think of the wonders of his work the greatness of his person, the loveliness of his face. And may we remember what we are, and as we remember what we are, may it drive us to act in accordance with all that you've done to us. For Jesus' sake, we pray for his glory. Amen.